0: Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website www.exchangechurch.org.au Today we're going to get back into the Gospel of Luke. We've been doing a series on that over the last... Uh, three or four weeks, up to Luke chapter 4. We did Luke chapter 4 a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to do the next section in that. But before we get there, just to sort of help set the scene for where we're going today as we open up this passage of Luke, uh, in sharing your faith, telling people about Jesus, sharing the gospel, have you ever had someone react with coldness or even anger? You know, sometimes you go with the best intentions that you've got and yet they still respond with a degree of anger or just, just real pushback there sometimes. We're going to see that today uh, with Jesus in this situation in Luke, in Luke chapter 4. It's not the reaction that Jesus wants, but in and through this reaction, Jesus will show us how we need faith and humility to receive the blessing of salvation that Jesus brings for us. So if you've got your Bibles, please go to Luke 4 now. And uh, we're going to read from verses 16 through to 30. That's not going to work. 16 is not going to work there. Luke chapter 16, uh, Luke chapter 4, sorry, verse 16 through to 30. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well? But only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and they drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Uh, Lord, we thank you today that we're able to come and open up your word. We ask and pray that, Holy Spirit, you would come and breathe life into this word right now. Uh, Lord, I am just a vessel, a broken vessel at that, but Lord, your word is not broken. Your word is true, your word is powerful, and Holy Spirit, you bring power to that word. So we ask now, as we just look at this situation in the local synagogue with Jesus, uh, giving his signature statement of his mission to be, uh, we ask and pray that, Lord, you would grow in our hearts faith and eyes to see who Christ is now as we open this word up. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So one thing we love to do at Exchange is open up God's word. Uh, We know that's the eternal truth that we have and it is powerful as the Holy Spirit works through that word to open up our hearts to see uh, the wonders of Christ. So we find Jesus here in a preparation period or just after his preparation period in the wilderness. If you read previous to this, Jesus was in the wilderness and now entering into the early days of his ministry. Uh, Jesus has come to fulfil God's sovereign plans of salvation. Jesus has come to fulfil these plans by teaching the truth of God's word, living a perfect life and then laying down that life as a perfect sacrifice for our sins. We find Jesus here at this point, though, in, this, in his ministry, in a teaching role here at the local synagogue. Uh, in fact, this is not the first time that Jesus has taught. Um, prior to this, we actually read that he did something in Capernaum. Uh, Jesus was doing that, teaching and healing around Capernaum, uh, a coastal town on the Sea of Galilee, not too far away. But now he's come back to Nazareth, his hometown. Nazareth is the place where Jesus has grown up and spent the first thirty years of his life as a carpenter in and around Nazareth, so at this point in time it 's a bit like the local boy coming home and coming of age to some extent here as Jesus comes back to Nazareth to uh, teach in their local synagogue. Uh, Luke writes this account I believe, to show us Jesus 's mission statement or his signature statement of his ministry. It's as though Jesus is showing us here his key platform about what his ministry will be all about, bringing glory to God and salvation for humanity here as he begins to open this up for us. So here's where we're travelling today with our big idea as we think about where we're going. Uh, Jesus comes to bring the blessing of salvation, which can only be received by faith and humility. By faith and humility. Okay, let's set the scene here for Jesus' message. Uh, He's in the local synagogue, or for our language today, you would call this the local church where he is. For all of Jesus' life, he had a habit of regular commitment of going to the local church. Uh, That even tells us something right there about the value of community and actually gathering together. Jesus actually, as was his custom or habit, regularly went to the synagogue, regularly went to his local church. A great thing to do, and we highly encourage it here at Exchange as well. So Jesus goes along to his local church at that time, and as is the custom there, they would allow people to have the privilege of reading a portion of God's word and then talking about what they've just read, explaining that and beginning to open that up. Jesus is given the roll, uh, given the not the roll, the scroll, the scroll. It's close to a roll. Jesus is given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah from the Old Testament. And then he carefully opens it up to what we know to be Isaiah 61. You'll see in your Bibles, it might have sort of quotation marks there. So let's read from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, the same verses that Jesus read. And he says this, "'The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, "'because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. "'He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, "'to proclaim liberty to the captives "'and the opening of the prison to those who are bound.' to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, full stop. But it doesn't stop there, does it? That's where Jesus stopped. Isaiah goes on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Now, Jesus wasn't coming for his ministry of judgment or vengeance at this time. That is in the future. But Jesus' ministry was to bring salvation to all. So Jesus didn't say that last line there of verse 2. Put that aside. Jesus now sits down after reading this astonishing statement in verse 21 and then he actually says, sorry, actually then in in verse 21 makes this astonishing statement as he sits down after reading that and he says this, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's a big call. He's just talked about the suffering servant or the Messiah from from the book of Isaiah there. And Jesus says, Isaiah 61, it's all about me. It's been fulfilled in your hearing. I am the promised Messiah. Jesus is saying, I am the suffering servant from Isaiah. I'm standing right before you now. This scripture is fulfilled in your hearing right now big call of Jesus so what's in this mission statement here or this signature statement that Jesus has just said to say hey this is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor there's five things that Jesus is actually saying here in that passage from Isaiah and here they are the first one is the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives opening the prison to those who are bound And then Jesus finishes by saying, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. There's five things picking up in that passage there that Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 61. What does Jesus mean when he says those things? What's he referring to? In one sense, you might say, is this a deep call to social action by Jesus? Because he's talking there about you know, setting um, the captives free and bringing good news to the poor and binding up the brokenhearted? Does Jesus mean when he says that he's coming to bring equality and fairness for all those who've been abused and crushed? Is that what Jesus is getting at here when he quotes this passage out of Isaiah 61? Well, let me just say this here. Social action isn't Jesus' main point As he speaks out of Isaiah 61 at that stage. Now, don't hear me wrong when I say that, to say, well, Toddy, you're saying there's no social action to do with gospel transformation? No, I'm not saying that at all. Social action is very much a part of the gospel. As we seek to see a transformation in people's lives, we seek to see their social status changed. And social action, the church meeting the needs of the practical needs of the people around about us, is a powerful witness to God's love working in our hearts as disciples of Jesus Christ. But social action isn't Jesus' main point here as he quotes Isaiah 61. See if you go back to the latter end of the chapters in Isaiah and see what's happening with this quote that comes out of there, it is the restoration and the coming of the glory of God to make all things right in those final chapters of Isaiah. The sinfulness of humanity has ushered in all types of pain and suffering and Israel was experiencing that during the time of Isaiah. And we all experience that now to some extent in our own lives just as well. Israel had felt the pain of their rejection of God And God's judgment on them at that time was to allow invading foreign countries to come in and to oppress them because they walked away from God. But God is going to bring salvation to them. So that's that prophecy here Isaiah makes in Isaiah 61. So this salvation that God is talking about with Isaiah and now talking of Jesus, because it's all about Jesus, primarily will be a reconciliation Back to God, us being reconciled back to the God who's made us from our sinful living before Him. Primarily, a, a spiritual reconciliation. In other words, you could say it like this: This salvation will be a primarily a release, spiritual releasing from spiritual poverty, spiritual liberty to the captives of sin, recovering of spiritual sight to those blinded by sin spiritual release from the oppression of sinful actions. That's what Jesus is talking about, primarily in that aspect. And then Jesus follows that up and he says, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour. What's he telling us? In other words, this is a time of salvation and rescue that Jesus is bringing in. It's bringing the Lord's favour and revealing that through his own self. This is a time of God's favour delivered through me as in Christ for mankind, for humanity. You see, this is the salvation that Jesus is bringing for all to be reconciled back to God, who we've all walked away from and turned our backs upon. This is the signature statement here that Jesus will now begin to carry out right through the rest of his ministry, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor salvation spiritual salvation well how do they respond to these people in Nazareth as they heard this how do they respond to Jesus astounding sermon as he opens up Isaiah 61 what do they think of this local carpenter boy speaking from Isaiah 61 as he does well initially they speak well of him but then at some point their tone begins to change have a look in verse 22 with me. And it says there, And all spoke well of him, and they marvelled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is, is not this Joseph's son? Somewhere between the first half of that verse and the second half of that verse, there's a change. Now, Luke doesn't quite sort of you know, say, Here it is, but we can see something's happened here with uh, these people in Nazareth. It's a bit like this. They've they've loved these early words, the way he's just so graciously opened up, Isaiah 61. But then something's happened in their mind as he's been going through that. And it's like they say, hang on guys, this is Joseph's son. He's the carpenter boy who lives up the road, fixes our broken chairs and broken tables. And he says, what? He's the Messiah? This scripture's been fulfilled in your hearing? Who the heck does he think he is? We know who he is. He's the carpenter boy who lives down the street. He's not the Messiah. Something changes in their minds here. First they're surprised and they're marvelled by his wonderful words that he's spoken to them. But now they're turning on him. Something's changed in their minds. And Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking at this very moment. He can see the words, as it were, rolling around in their mind as they look at him and what he's just said from Isaiah 61. He knows they're thinking this. Well, if you think you're the Messiah, Jesus, well, then show us some proof. Do a miracle right now for us. Show us who you are. Do something supernatural right in front of us. Do what you've done in Capernaum. Now do it for us here. Prove yourself, Jesus, exactly what they're thinking. Jesus follows on in verse 24 and he says this Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. It's a bit like the old saying we have familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus, we know who you are. You're not the Messiah. You're the guy down the road who's got a nail gun and a saw and a few other things, and you fix up broken chairs and tables. We don't believe who you are, Jesus. We're not going to receive your message and we're not going to believe in anything that you say at the moment because we we know you're the carpenter guy who lives down the street. Now, this can be a problem for us today, these sort of things. Often, often we don't take the time to listen to somebody properly and evaluate what they're truly saying to us. Often, we too easily throw out the message with the messenger. Now, don't get me wrong, the, message, the messenger is important. Uh, it's important to back up what you say with your life, but sometimes people may not do it that well, but it's really important that we still listen to what somebody's saying. It's equally important that we evaluate what they're saying as much as we may make a judgment call on the person themselves. Uh, we probably see it greatly today uh, in our political divisions, particularly with the US election over the last few months, how it's played out. Now I'm not making a political statement here but we should always be listening to both sides. Hear what they've got to say other than just have this filter on and just whatever that side says or whatever that side, we're just not even going to listen to it. need to listen carefully to the message. But the people of Nazareth didn't do that. They had this filter on basically straight away or pretty soon after Jesus started talking and their filter was he's a carpenter, he's not the Messiah and they saw everything through that. Now, just a side comment here with Jesus. His character was flawless, so they couldn't fault the messenger at all. He was perfect in every way. But anyway, still, they had this filter on, and that was how they were viewing everything that Jesus said. Now, so Jesus begins now to show them exactly where they're at, what their thoughts are as he begins to present this truth uh, to them. He actually exposes their attitude that they actually hold towards God as Jesus opens up Isaiah 61 for them. Jesus, in effect, says this. Now, what I did in Capernaum speaks for itself. I do not need to repeat that here again. I don't need to show myself again. Here is your real problem, Nazareth, that you've got with me. It's not that I'm not doing miracles for you. Here's the real problem. And then what Jesus does next, he goes on to show two accounts... Of the prophets Elijah and Elisha to begin to expose the people in the synagogue here what their real problem is for not being able to see Jesus. Here's the first one he goes to. He goes uh, to uh, the, the prophet Elijah back in 1 Kings 17, and it's Elijah who goes to a widower who's collecting a few sticks to cook her last meal before her family dies during a disastrous drought and famine that was upon the land. didn't rain for three years and six months. It was a disaster. And God tells Elijah to go to this widower and to ask her to feed him. So he goes to her and he says, before you cook your meal, before you make your last meal, please give me a drink of water and please make bake me a cake first before you think about doing your own family. And then he says, then watch and see that God will make your oil and flour never to run out for the rest of this famine. Elijah goes to his widow and says that to her. So she replies, even though this is our last meal, I'll believe you and will do just as you say. So here's the key thought. The widower believed or trusted what God was saying through Elijah the prophet. She trusted, she believed what God was saying to Elijah the prophet. That's the first account. The second account that Jesus says is about the healing of Naaman from leprosy in 2 Kings 5. They'd be familiar with all these things. Again, Naaman is this high-powered, high-positioned commander in the king of Syria's army. He's a proud man, he's a man of prestige, he's a man of wealth, he's a man of immense power. But Naaman's got leprosy, a terrible disease back in that day. But Naaman's told there's a man in Israel who can heal him, who can make him well. You just need to go to Israel and this man will heal you. So this proud and powerful Naaman arrives at the prophet Elisha's home. He travels to Israel and he's told, go to Elisha's home. He knocks on the door and he waits for Elisha to come out and to heal him. As he's told, Elisha will do that. Instead... Elisha sends out his servant and then tells Naaman, go down to the river Jordan and just wash in it seven times and you'll be healed. How do you think Naaman would take to that? Naaman was furious. He was livid. How dare he send his servant out to see me? Doesn't Elisha know who I am, as in Naaman? Does he know my position of power? Doesn't he know the the prestige that I have? Couldn't he personally come out and come and pray it over me and done some sort of shabam and just sort of made it all happen like an instant miracle? Couldn't he have done that? And what's wrong with the the rivers in Syria? Why do I have to wash in this dirty river in Jordan? That's how Naaman responds here to Elisha, servant coming out. Naaman leaves fuming, hopping mad. He's offended and ticked off that he's been so... um, ticked off by Elisha the way he's been treated by him. He gets a little way down the road and Naaman's servants talk him out of this rage and they say, why not humble yourself and just do this simple thing that Elisha has told you to do? Just humble yourself and go to the River Jordan and dip in it seven times and you'll be healed. And he goes and does that. Dips into the Jordan seven times and he's healed. But the key thought here that Jesus is communicating is this. To receive God's blessing, Naaman had to humble himself to rely on God and not his position or power. It's not about who Naaman is. It's about who God is. And Naaman had to humble himself to do that. So what's Jesus doing here as he uh, relays these two stories back to the people in the synagogue at Nazareth? So, the people at Nazareth were doing neither of these two things that Jesus just spoke about. There was no faith and there was no humility. They didn't believe Jesus' words from God at all. And they certainly weren't going to humble themselves to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah. No faith and no humility. So, where did this come from? Where did this unbelief come from, from these people in Nazareth? And why were they so proud? as well, not to humble themselves to receive who Jesus is, believe who Jesus is. Unbelief comes from a hard heart, a heart hardened by sin. Unbelief resists God at every turn. We see the very evidence for God right before our eyes, and a hard heart, an unbelieving heart, just denies it. Yet it's right in front of our eyes. We deny who God is. Reports of Jesus' miracles already got back to Nazareth from Capernaum. It was going right around the countryside that miraculous things are happening. And they said, No, not going to believe it. Just going to deny it. Hard, hard. And their pride for the people of Nazareth came from their overinflated opinion of themselves, who they are and what they've achieved. Who are they? They're the chosen people of God, His special nation. They had a whole system of religion made up of doing good works based on their own perceived value. You lived a good life before God and he rewarded you for all your achievements according to your accomplishment in your strength. It was all about you and what you could do and your perceived good deeds. And the whole community got formed around this way of doing life, became traditional for them. And synagogue or church, heading off to that, it was just another thing you could do to elevate yourself before God. You could tick the list. I went to church this week. I've done something else for you this week, God. Aren't I a good person? What does Jesus do? Jesus comes along with these people in Nazareth and he upsets the apple cart. He turns the apple cart over on them, disturbs their life. They're offended. How dare you, Jesus, tell us that the prophets Elijah and Elisha took God's word to Gentiles like this widower at Zarephath or Naaman the Syrian, and they received with faith and humility. How dare you say that about us and to us? You're exposing us. But this is what happens, you see, with pride and unbelief. They begin to feed off each other and continues to produce a very hardened heart. And the end result of a hardened heart just grows in pride. As they listen to Jesus expose the hardness of the heart, they actually erupt in rage. Look in verse 28, what happens here? When they heard these things, these two stories about uh, Elijah and Elisha, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Strong word. They were filled with rage. Consumed with rage. They were seriously angry at Jesus. Anger and fury gripped their heart. They are actually, all they wanted to do with Jesus was just eliminate him. And in verse 29, they actually turned into a lynch mob. Massive transformation took place all the wrong way. With seething rage, they forcibly took Jesus to a cliff top, and all they could think of was just throw him down over the cliff. He's just exposed their unbelief and their pride. Is that not evidence of the animosity of humanity towards God? Unbelievable. A man who's lived before them a flawless life for 30 years comes in and opens up God's word for them. And what do they want to do? They want to kill him. They want to kill him. It shows us just how sin hardens our hearts. And not only hardens our hearts, we actually go and do crazy things, like take people to a brow hill and want to push them off because of the way they've upset us. So the world we live in contributes to this hardening every day. Every day. Now, we'll, we'll gladly listen to science and whatever they tell us, we'll believe that. That's for sure. And whatever they discover, yeah, we'll believe what science has showed us but we can't possibly believe in a God that we cannot see. We'll believe in science, but we won't believe in God. And this world tells us also that you can create your own destiny. You can create your own future. Dream big and achieve your dreams through your strength and your power and might and wisdom and then take pride in your achievements. Be proud of what you've done because it's all about you. The world we live in continues to contribute to the hardening of this heart in our lives. Unbelief, what is it? It's the height of arrogance. It's the height of arrogance. To have the truth staring us in the face and say we don't believe that is unbelievably arrogant. To stand back and see this world in all its beauty and its complexity... And then to say there's no glorious, wonderful creator here that's put all this together is out of foolishness. How can we say that when we see how how beautiful this world is, how complex this world is, but then we say, no, no, it just happened by chance, just fell together by chance? Or the beauty of the gospel is presented to us and it's so right, it's so true, it's so precious, it's so compelling, it's just it all stacks up. And God's word precisely explains this world and all the trouble that it's in. And God's word also explains the remedy to get out of the trouble that we're in as well and to uh, restore us from our brokenness to become whole people again. And then yet we say when we see all that, no, not for me. Not for me. (coughs) Unbelief is the height of arrogance. Pride's no better. Pride is no better. Pride serves to blind us from reality. But for these people in Nazareth, they've been sitting in church all their life. They'd heard the Old Testament read through time after time after time and they have been building a salvation based on all their own achievements. And going to synagogue on Saturday, was, which I did back then, was just ticking the list. Look at me, God. Look at what I've done. Look at how impressive I am, God. Because it's all about me in a pride sense when it comes like that. And not only with pride do we seek to impress God, we also seek to impress other people as well by showing them how good we are too. But that can go two ways sometimes when we're seeking to impress other people. Because what happens when we see other people doing a better job than us at things in life, there's two responses that can happen to us. One is we get crushed because we just feel like we're totally defeated by that person over there. I just can't get anywhere near as good as them. On one end, we can get crushed by pride. On the other end, we actually can get angry when we see other people doing a better job than us. Anger kicks in, and all we want to do is eliminate that competition out of our lives. That's the consequences here of pride. So what's Jesus coming to do? He's coming to set people free who are captive to unbelief. To those who've been walking the treadmill of unbelief all their life, he now comes to set people free onto the path of freedom that what they've been destined for and what God's created them for by simply believing in Jesus. Hebrews eleven six tells us this, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and catch this, and that he rewards those who seek him. So when we believe, when we have faith, when we trust in God and come to him in this way, he rewards us. How does he reward us? By opening himself up to us and revealing who he is and restoring our souls and healing our souls by the truth and the knowledge of the gospel going deeper and deeper into our hearts. Jesus is simply believe. 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 For those filled with pride and feeling the consequences of that, whether it be failure or being driven by anger and pride because you want to eliminate the competition, Jesus sets us free by his grace to walk in humility before him. Look at James 4.6. But he gives more grace. Therefore it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. As we come in humility before him, he gives us more grace, opens himself up to us. And we grow more and more in love with him and delight with him. This is the grace that Jesus Christ was bringing to the people of Nazareth. He doesn't strike them down for their utter disrespect and their anger towards him. They deserve that. They precisely deserve that. They were about to kill the Son of God. But Jesus has come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, He's come to set all those captives to sin free. Not to judge at this time. Judgment is coming, but not at this particular time with Jesus. So what does Luke want us to do with this passage today as we read that? As we think about what Jesus has done here in the local synagogue, in the local church, and open up these couple of stories uh, out of the Old Testament, what's Luke want us to see here and do about this today? Luke wants us to see Jesus. Luke wants us to see the gospel of hope that Jesus brings. He wants to see Jesus grow larger in our hearts. Luke wants us to seriously consider what Jesus is saying here, not just take a casual glance at this, not a superficial glance, just like the people of Nazareth did and allow this filter to come on and block everything out of the truth of what Jesus was saying there. Luke wants us to take time to reflect and think about who Jesus is and his claims. C.S. Lewis once said this about Jesus. Jesus is either a deranged lunatic for the claims he has made or he truly is the Son of God. You see, Luke wants us to take a long, hard look at who Jesus is. Why? Because it's of eternal significance in our lives to carefully weigh up who Jesus is. And he doesn't want us to take a five-minute soundbite of Jesus, which we're so accustomed to in this world, like scrolling through Instagram, just flicking through and hardly looking at some of that stuff. Luke wants us to stop and look and think and reflect and understand who Jesus is. Luke also wants us to do this as, as we read this passage. He wants us to see that God delights in a humble heart that comes to him in faith. God delights in that. And that's a glorious thought to think about, that God delights in... In those who come before him with a humble heart and simply in faith by believing. That actually liberates us, that liberates us and our soul from the change of this world when we just come before God humbly and in faith, believing who he is. You see, God isn't looking for your achievements. God isn't looking for my achievements. God isn't looking for the talents you may or may not possess. God isn't looking to see how smart you are or how intelligent you are. God isn't looking to see how attractive you may be in trying to match up with this world. God's not looking for any of those things. In fact, all that stuff to God means zip. Intelligence, money, power, attractiveness means nothing to God. Nothing whatsoever. What God is looking for is a humble heart. And a heart that believes. Look at what he says here in Isaiah 57. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's a precious, precious, precious promise. It's not about who I am or what I've done. It's about coming before God in a humble way, in a believing way, and he comes to revive me just as I am. I bring all my brokenness with me and my failures, and God delights to restore me and transform me and change me. This is exactly what God is calling you to do right now. Now, I don't know everybody here today in this room, and I praise God we have got visitors with us. Now, I don't know whether you've actually truly surrendered your life to Jesus. Whether you've truly come before him with a humble heart to say, I believe. I'd ask you today to do that. It's the most important thing you'll ever, ever do. Believe who Jesus is. Accept what he says. Humbly put your faith and your trust in him. Is the most glorious decision you'll ever make. Everything within you will say, I don't want to do it. And another part of you will say, you do want to do it. There'll be a wrestle there. But it'll be the most glorious decision you'll ever make. You'll meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Maybe you are a believer. And today you need to continue to walk in faith and humility to keep growing in gospel transformation. Pride and unbelief continues to war inside of us. We need to continue to walk in humility, understanding, I don't know it all. I am a broken vessel. I need help. I don't have to have it all together. And I need to keep believing Jesus' word and walking humbly before him, and he delights to give us grace to be able to keep walking in the the transformation of the gospel. You see, Jesus is proclaiming the year of the Lord's favour bringing salvation for all. Let's pray. Lord, today we uh, come before you and uh, thank you for your word, your eternal word. And and Lord, I pray right now as I think of uh, the truth of the gospel, Lord, who am I? Your word would tell me I'm, I'm a broken clay pot. In other words, I'm a broken vessel myself. But Lord, I know your word is not broken. And Lord, I'd ask and pray today that even as I share this passage here from Isaiah, ask and pray now, Lord, you would begin to open up people's hearts and eyes. And for those who are wrestling about salvation, wrestling about believing in who Jesus is, God, I pray, please, now, open up their eyes. Take them from death to life. Take them from darkness to light. And Lord, while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I ask right now, Lord, if there's some here who want to commit their life to Christ, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand just while I open my eyes up, but no other eye will be opened up. If you want to commit yourself to Christ right now, just raise your hand. Father, for those who are thinking about that, I pray you would give them the ability to come and to see me after the service, Lord, so we could talk about the most glorious thing they could ever do. Father, as I think about that now, I pray this as well, that we would continue to walk in humility and in faith before you, Lord, to receive that grace that you so generously want to pour down upon us that you've done here with Jesus, even in the synagogue at Nazareth. Opening up the truth, which hurts initially, but, Lord, that begins to reveal uh, where our need is. Help us, Lord, to keep walking in faith and humility so that we keep changing, we keep transforming, Lord, before the world around about us so that we can reflect and show Christ out to this world where we live. Father, thank you for your word now, and I pray, equip us, Holy Spirit, to put that in place uh, for this week coming. Lord, we ask that. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people to Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.